Hi, everybody, and welcome to the No Country Podcast. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this Monday? David, I'm doing very morning. well. I'm, I'm very excited to say that some reviews for my textbook, A Guide to Creative Writing in the Imagination, are really starting to flow in. They're very thoughtful, uh, thorough, interesting reviews to read unto themselves, and... Uh, there's been a great support from our No Country listenership, and it means a great deal to me. Uh, it means a great deal to a much larger community that is that lies behind the book. Uh, I drew on, you know, the, the participation and energy and commitment of students across, you know, really the last ten years from around the world. So, it's a it's a great endorsement of what I try to do, but also of of these. Uh, fresh and exciting younger minds and we really really appreciate that support it's very meaningful to me and i'm excited to say that some of the the people responding are teachers at different levels than than what i specialize in they're working at middle school and high school level uh, or the the end of life sort of creative retirement phase so it's it's very rewarding. Every every author, as you know, wants to hear good things about their books. Uh, but a thoughtful review that really shows that people are putting the material to use in their lives is is just a tremendous bonus. So I, I'm on a good vibe to uh, you know to start the week right now. Good, excellent. How are you doing? Yeah, things are. Oh, things are just kind of moving along here. I woke up today with a strange melancholy feeling. I blame the recent lunar eclipse. Um, I feel that, uh, you know, there's a Mercury retrograde going on, and then there was that lunar eclipse, and it's the most bizarre, difficult-to-describe emotional feeling right now where I don't... uh, I'm definitely not under a, a depressive black cloud. It's kind of, uh, for anybody who has depression, which I have had for quite a, some time and have you know sort of mitigated through healthy lifestyle choices and brain exercises and to a certain extent even the exercises found within the show, something interesting occurs in which the depressive uh, aura or cloud still comes but you've just become so uh, adept at dealing with it that you don't exactly know how to describe something to somebody it's a feeling of you know if i didn't have those tools i would certainly be underwater at the moment and it's a recognition of that Uh, perhaps a good example would be if you're extremely healthy and you feel a cold coming on and again through healthy lifestyle choices you're able to sort of mitigate that cold in such a way that you aren't bedridden but it's still it's still there it's still trying to replicate in your cells but you aren't allowing it to happen so it's a complex amalgam of feelings that I have at the moment but not negative and not not positive just overall very focused I think on taking days one step at a time well that's always a good plan I think and I point out to listeners uh, 
David used an important word and one of the themes of the series overall, one of our, our great life commitments, and it's certainly going to be a major feature in the guidebook to the show, which David and I are working on uh, right now. I'm having some really exciting fun uh, on my portion of it. Uh, David used the word melancholy, and that's a good old-fashioned mm-hmm. word. It goes, it goes back a long way. It goes back to uh, the medical psychological theory of the humors, the humors, uh, which we've kind of moved beyond, and, and yet not, because I think everyone knows what those, that idea of, of the psyche and mental mm-hmm. health means. But sometimes by repositioning, using different words, we really do change the substance of thought and the substance of experience. One of the problems with depression, and any psychologist will agree with this, is that it's simply such an overused word. It is a definitely yeah. a, one of those words like culture, as we use, that needs to have a lowercase d, uppercase d uh, qualification. Uh, many people simply don't see it as uh, a valid psychological condition. Uh, some people are so committed to it, they overuse that term, and we lose all shades of nuance, all colors a palette of colors of psychic experience and I find melancholy a very powerful word Uh, a couple of my uh, very select uh, older male friends use that word I think it's very powerful Mm -hmm. and I think that if you look back at the history of that particular word you will find uh, a corresponding or analogous body of visual art and music that speaks to that state in a way that, you know, depression, no, that doesn't have that body of, of literature and art that has dealt with it. So sometimes what we, we need to do, uh, the handiest tool is to think about the specific words we use. And I think that's particularly true when it comes to moods. Uh, mm-hmm. Because moods mm-hmm. are always, you know, they work on many levels. They work on levels of, of immaterial spirit, but also neurological and physical health, uh, metabolism. Word choice really does matter, and I think there's a world of difference between uh, waking up with a melancholy sense and a depressive sense, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, the words, I mean, deep depress has a real feeling of a smothering blanket or, uh, you know, a kind of like a pneumatic... Uh, you know, the pressure being placed upon you by outside forces. Melancholy feels, uh, you know, like your body and mind is just a big, empty church that nobody's been to for a Lovely. while. Lovely. Lovely. And, uh, but yeah, nevertheless, we soldier forward, we move on, and, uh, yeah, so getting into the episode, the words yeah. that I used last time, the two words of the five, I used doghouse. You did. Doghouse. The opportunity presented itself, and I took it. Uh, just as a little background for people when I'm choosing these, I don't actually 
when Chris gives me the five words, I don't say, okay, those are the two that I'm going to use. What's fun about this game is like a boxer, you're looking for an opening, right? You're, you're waiting for the conversation to expose itself so that you can slip those words in. It's part of what's fun about the game. But the other one was, uh, I was describing my drawing I described the kind of hole in the center as a as a rectum. So you did you did <laughs> Re rectum was another one, but uh, you know just to kind of again give a little insider view here, uh, one of the potential words would have been, you know, geology. And Chris was, you know, we talked about uh, where this drawing was taking place. And it was the the Blythe and Taglios in Blythe, California. And it's, you know, uh, that would have been a perfect place to slip in, you know, geological formations. I could have used that there. Um, but by that point, I had my, I had my heart a little set on using rectum once I made that <laughs> and noticed the, noticed the similarities. So with that in mind, uh, I have five new words today that I have to figure out uh, where I'm going to place them, how I'm going to use them. And, as is our tradition, Chris has an imaginative challenge for me to do concurrently with the discussion that we that we have. So, Chris, what's my challenge? Okay, okay. Well, I, I've, I've been thinking about, we all have little daydream programs that we run through our head. Maybe when we were kids, we, you know, if, if we had any sort of sports background, we, we were shooting the, the winning jump shot, you know, at down to the buzzer. And we heard an announcer's voice celebrating our, our great championship. We all have these little programs that we run through all the time. And they can kind of be uh, annoying, and they often seem to, to no point, but they do reveal some deep desires within us, and I, I think we should pay more attention to them. So this is a little daydream that I'm sure many people have from time to time, but I'll, I'll give it a little bit more frame. Are you familiar with the, the, the premise of the film, uh, and it's been done many times different ways, uh, Brewster's Millions. It's also the theme yes. of the Million Pound Note, a story by Mark Twain. The idea here is uh, you're going to be given uh, a sum of money and you have to get rid of it entirely right. within a week. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm going to put a few sort of tighter parameters around it to make it a bit more tactical. Um, but we all have the daydream of what would we do if we were really rich, you know. One of my personal favorites is, you know, if I could have any style of interior and exterior decoration of house, only one, but to just, you know, Bill Gates standard, what would I go for? You know, what, you know, would it be the Scottish castle? No, I don't think so. Would it be the Japanese, you know, uh, modernist house or the Los Angeles uh, John Lautner style house? You know, and I play those little games with my head. Uh, so your challenge, David, is you've been given $100,000, which is a lot of money, but not a lot of money today. Okay? okay. You will get three times that amount of money 
if you can fully spend the $100,000 in five days' time, but you can't do just one thing. You have to make five specific transactions. Five, okay? So there's some discipline mm -hmm. on this. All right? Five transactions to get rid of $100,000, and you'll get 300000 if you achieve yeah. that goal. So it's, it's some very tactical choices. Uh, and it's playing with a basic daydream that a lot of us have, have thought about. Um, and I think it's, it's an interesting amount of money. And I think it's a very interesting amount of money for uh, someone your age in this day and age. Okay? Mm-hmm. So a little practical mm -hmm. thing. And also, just to remind, I know, I think as a, a lifelong writer, uh, one of the things I really regret from my younger days is that no one uh, older shared any information about the business side of art in any way. It was a closed shop. Uh, no one gave away any information whatsoever. And I think that artists generally, uh, unless they somehow magically hit the big time, are some of the worst financial managers uh, ever, whether you're talking about pop music, uh, visual art, film, writing. There's just a, a, a you know, the, the history is littered with people who've made bad decisions because we haven't gotten the training. So that's another little practical reason to, to think about uh, how to spend some money effectively. Okay. I love it. It's good. So five separate transactions. It seems to me that the simplest way to do this would be to break it up into $20,000 purchases. Um, but we might, we might play around with that a little bit. Um, and it's got to be exactly a hundred thousand. Yep, exactly. Every single penny of it, but not go Go over. Exactly right. Exactly right. So nothing left okay. in the kitty, but nothing, no debt. Got you. Okay. Yeah. I can make that happen. Exactly five, not six. Exactly. Not four. Exactly right. Exactly right. So there, okay. there are some real tactical parameters in play. Okay. Okay. That, that helps. Well, all right. On this melancholy lunar eclipse ass day <laughs> what would you like to talk about today because i let's get into it let's talk about some stuff we're we're coming back this will probably more than likely be an episode that people listen to on the free feed um it is currently may the what day is it chris is it the 19th 16th, 16th. Yeah. Jeez, it's slipping away old man right? i yeah. am i am i am just unmoored um so in a couple weeks then the 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 patreon is is essentially uh over and we again we thank everybody who got involved in that but this will be this will probably be an episode for people who are new to the show people tend to go all the way back to the beginning full of piss and vinegar and a thought that they are going to be completists about it and then usually you get to about episode seven or eight and you start picking from the lot 
to just sort of see what's interesting to you. And then you go back to the beginning and you listen to the, 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 the latest three or four episodes. So hello to everybody. Uh, welcome back to the program. Chris and I have been doing some cool stuff here. And I'm sure he's got some interesting topics to talk about today. Well, I do. And I, I hope that, you know, David and I have never, uh, you know, actively pursued contentious issues for the sake of controversy. In <laughs> fact, I think uh, that we've been very restrained a, a great deal of the time. But um, I, I kind of want to throw out an opening lump of things. And David's always so good at sort of pulling those opening gambits apart. And I have been uh, confronted with a new environment in my house that is much more connected to the natural environment, if you would forgive that use of, of the term. I don't normally think of things as being... You know, there's no more environment in Montana than there is in Manhattan, I say. Nevertheless, I am absolutely surrounded by a richness of bird life that I was a little bit surprised about. And the quail, the morning doves, the mockingbirds, the hummingbirds, and the American robins are just a minute-to-minute part of, of my life, even when I'm in the house. And I can tell you that they are up to one, one major project right now. They are humping and bumping and making baby birds like you would not believe. That's Hell yeah. Then the bunnies. I saw Mr. Bunny jump Miss Bunny right in front of me. And I said, do you mind? You know, it's the expression <laughs> humping like people are serious about that. I mean, we know these yeah. things, but it's they funny to see that. it. You know, it's funny mm-hmm. to see it. So I'm looking at all of this nesting, all of this family raising, all of this amorous and prolific life-creating life thing happening in a way that's just, I mean, you can't escape it. And of course, in the background, the political topic that has really haunted my entire adult life, Roe v. Wade, oh boy. is mm-hmm. once again top headline news. So yeah. I just, I want to just hit that ball over the net to you first uh, and see sure. what happens. <laughs> hmm. Mm. Well, this is a very complicated issue and one that I've already, to reuse a term from last week, put me in the doghouse a little bit. Uh, It was brought up to me by my wife because on our drive back from her work, we always pass a Catholic church. And the Catholic church out front has a bunch of, um, you know, I'll just say creepy (laughs) sort of paper baby dolls hanging from a chain link fence that are meant to, you know, represent some 
number of children who've been aborted in the past week, month, year. I haven't taken that close of a look at it, but it's it's and it you know this sort of thing uh, makes Rios just incensed. And so when the Roe v. Wade thing happened, we passed this church, and you know she was kind of you know sort of going uh, going off on it, right? And I said, uh, not in a cruel way, but there's no real way to say this and not have a woman get furious with you. I said, oh, you know, I just don't really care much about that. Ooh. And, mm -hmm. and she, you know, in my opinion, actually rightly got a little upset because that's not something that you just say in a conversation with your spouse anyway, right? I mean, anything that she wants to talk about should be open game. I should care about it by the, because of the fact that she's the one who's saying it. And I don't care about it wasn't really accurate either. I think this was kind of leading up to my my uh, my spell, if you will, and I was just sort of feeling uh, a kind of exhaustion with media cycles in general. Uh, this is something that is very hard to explain to friends of mine who do tend to buy in uh no scratch that not buy into media narratives but who become engaged with them right uh it's almost as if they are deactivated until the issue of the day that they actually care about comes along and then they become activated and it's something that they are very very concerned about and Roe v. Wade to me was just another one of those things in which, you know, the abortion argument, as you said, it's been going on for my entire lifetime. And I know that it is a political football that will be continuously, pendulously swung from one end to the next in order to keep voters mobilized. And, you know, if I want to kind of dig down into what I meant by I don't care, I just sort of feel, first of all, that I don't, I don't want anybody hurt, right? So you don't, you don't want anybody getting unsanctioned abortions that could lead to them dying. You don't want anybody to be denied an abortion treatment uh, if it's life-saving. But, you know, in the sphere of my life, and things that I can really pay attention to and expend the energy getting upset about, I have a really difficult time reconciling my own bitterness over the past two years uh, of bodily autonomy being something to be scoffed at and to become sort of this code for you know, me being a terrible person. And then, you know, all of a sudden, bodily autonomy is back in the news. And these same people who would have been completely fine, and I believe this, completely fine, sending, you know, <laughs> sending me to some sort of re-education camp while they injected my one-year-old son with an experimental substance against my will, are uh, now seem to feel as though I should be concerned about their bodily autonomy.
Listen, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I think you're breaking this down. Uh, this is, is obviously a very complicated topic, uh, mm -hmm. which is not to say it's a complex topic. I think there's a very big difference. Mm -hmm. I think complications come in from, from many different angles, but are often on the same level. For me, complexity you know, suggests very, very different levels where just the categories are hard to organize. Um, I think, first of all, the news cycle thing is something that, that everyone uh, would be aware of. And I think that's where the agreement, if there is any, across any major topic, uh, amongst educated people comes from. Because there, there is a very clear sense that the, the mainstream media and all of its major social media extensions, such as Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram, etc., there is a real directive to manipulate attention, to manipulate uh, emotion, to get people worked up, whether or not people feel like there is any you know, practical outlet or channel or result that they can have. Um, the media doesn't care about that. They simply want more clicks. They want more attention time. And they're really trying to sell product through ads. And I think most educated people understand that. And even when we, you know, and we all occasionally will get sucked into one issue, you know, say more than another, and we, we forget that we're being completely uh, toyed with. But that remains an ongoing problem. And it's only a question then of what the next issue coming up will be. You know, what's going to resurface from the past yet again? What new bizarreness? that's probably not that new uh, will come along. And then the next immediate question is, well, how do we process that? Can we actually talk about these issues? Can we rejig them? Can we engage with them even? Or are we simply going to be overwhelmed by the headlines and get worked up into various states of, of distress and, and personal dysfunction. I think that's a really major question, no matter what the topic is, you know, whether it's COVID, whether it's the invasion of Ukraine, on and on and on, it doesn't matter. The media formula is exactly the same. And I think that we need to really, uh, certainly the educated classes need to definitely re-engage with the interrogation of the media because it's become an epidemic problem that is very hard uh, to respond to, you know? We're, we're, we end up just having flame wars amongst ourselves in social media and that's just so non-productive but it doesn't really address the bigger problem of media control. Uh, the other thing I think that you've touched on, and you've, you, you've done a good job about this in the past too, and it's resonated with some people, because uh, I was kind of doing a little bit of Vox Pop surveying of, of people I know who've been listening to us since the start. And one of your points has been that when you were growing up, and I think this even applies you know, to when I was growing up, that, that talking politics with friends, uh, you've used the word gauche which I think is a wonderful yeah. uh, way to put it. That resonates with a lot of people, and there actually is quite a bit of professional 
psychological literature looking at this. And I was speaking to my psychologist friend uh, in Denver, who's really got, uh, both he and his wife farm practice, and, and I think I've mentioned them, that they have their fingers on a lot of pulses this way. And he not only sort of further emphasized that point and, and, and you know, expressed how that resonated with him and resonates across his practice, which is pretty diverse, mm-hmm. uh, he said that the interesting thing about the last 10 years is that what we mean by politics has so greatly expanded. So not only has a topic moved from being gauche to something that is harped on, the topic itself has blown up into a realm that, uh, that I would have never referred to as politics when I was 21. You know, it's much bigger than mm-hmm. that. I, I would have had a much narrower definition of what was a political concern, you know? So that's another aspect to this. Of, of So we've got the media manipulation, which applies to any topic possible. We've got a growing sense of politics being something that has moved into the public social media sphere in, in ways that, that quite surprised me. I, don't, I wouldn't have predicted that. Uh, and I grew up in the mm-hmm. Bay Area in the mm-hmm. 60s, you know. Um, I still wouldn't predict how it's going. Meanwhile, the definition of politics has expanded like gas in a room, you know. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've got a range of, of things going on there, that, that, which is, I think, another way of saying that whatever the topic is, whether it's Roe v. Wade or Ukraine or COVID or whatever, the economy, well, the economy seems to me to be, that seems to me a very legitimate political concern. I would have included that in my definition 30 years ago. Uh, yeah. None of these issues really actually relate to any one issue. That's what's so odd, you know? Right, right, right. It's the idea that... We have all of these things to talk about. And to say that they're inconsequential is not the correct term because they do have consequences. But they all do seem to be sort of circling or orbiting things that we, that we don't talk about, things that are tougher to talk about. And... One of the interesting things about this media manipulation and the fact that the idea of talking politics is gauche might be resonating with some listeners is because the how complicated, again not complex but complicated, these issues are uh, is being completely ignored. And I think people want to uh, sort of return if not to a complete moratorium on speaking about certain things an acknowledgement of the complicated nature of some of these things so I have two things to say about that the first thing that comes to mind I read a book last night called Communions by Adam Lehrer it's a story of uh, 
it's, it's multiple chapters in which he is taking on the persona of a different famous artistic junkie. So there's a great, there's a great chapter in here where he has a, a dialogue in purgatory between Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. Whoa. There's a, there's a Jean-Michel Basquiat chapter. Uh, there is, uh, there's some other, there's one where Old Dirty Bastard is going to record with DJ Screw in Houston that touches on the use of promethazine codeine, aka lean. But there's a postface in it written by a very smart writer named Nina Power. And one particular paragraph stood out to me so much, and I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. Um, this is in the context of talking about, about drugs, right? But I'm going to sort of cut the quote uh, to a, the, a part where she starts talking about trees, right? So a tree is chemical, mythic, poetic, natural, a part of everything else, somewhere for birds and squirrels to live, and when chopped down, material for our own habitation. The tree is living and it is dead. To see even a single tree from multiple perspectives is to come alive in the light of the truth. That truth is itself multiple. Um, and so I think that one thing that might be so exhausting to a lot of people about the team sports, um, you know, media-fed narratives upon which you're supposed to have a kind of unequivocal party line opinion about these things is that you know we want to get back to these things being a little messy a little difficult if you want to talk about abortion one of the things that i think is so fascinating having listened to experts on both abortion rights and activists for uh at the abolition of abortion is that nobody can come to, to an agreement on when a life begins. And the reason why they can't come to an agreement on it is because it's a, it's a deeply interesting spiritual question, which is, when does a soul enter a body? What is a soul? You know, is the act of abortion uh, a woman's health, a, a health procedure, right? That should be no different from getting a tumor removed? Or is it murder? And the reason why it's such a contentious issue is because, and the truth of it could be, and this will satisfy no one except for the people who are hungry for that perspectivalism, the truth is that it's both at different times. And maybe it's neither. <laughs> yeah, there's a quantum nature to reality that we, we, we just can't accept the moment that that moves out of you know, a particle physics lab situation into actual life that we, uh, you know, deal with all the time. I mean, none of this, uh, okay, well, let me just throw this in and see if, if this, um, how it bounces back against what you've just okay. been mentioning. Uh, it's it's uh, I'll just paraphrase this, but this comes from the guidebook to the series that David and I are working on, 
And uh, at the end of the book, uh, we're putting together what we call a hundred questions for reflection and review. Uh, Some of them deal specifically with with topics that we've obviously dealt with and sometimes at length in the series. And some of them come in from weird, oblique angles. Uh, And I really favor that that very strongly. I use that as a core teaching technique Mm -hmm. that you you shed light on something from very different angles and you get a very different sense of the dimensionality and true complexity of, of any question or topic. But uh, here's, the, here's the gloss. Beginning in the 1950s, American literature in particular became an onslaught of revelation of secrets, taboo subjects, from the personal to the small family to the small town to the rural to the urban neighborhood. The functionalist argument for this wave of art was that it helped break down social stigmas. If you can talk about a problem, you're closer to solving the problem. However, Drug addiction, alcoholism, mental health problems were a key feature of those works of fiction, drama, and nonfiction. Look at our situation today. We have enormous numbers of conversations about these topics, and yet we have an unprecedented level of drug addiction problems, mental health problems. We have had multiple sexual revolutions, not just the 60s and 70s, and yet I think it would be a a difficult argument to make that the world isn't filled, or American culture at least, isn't filled with a great deal of loneliness and sexual angst today. So if breaking down stigmas is a way of solving problems, what's the problem? We're not doing a good job. So, does that have any resonance to you about what the point you made just previously? Yeah, it, could you say the, the last line you did, you just said, because that was a good one. Does, break, well, does breaking down stigmas, in fact, yeah. help solve problems? Let's just really simplify. Right. Ooh, ooh. And I love, I love the simplicity of it. It's something that I have been thinking about for a very long time because if you had asked me this question while I was growing up, I would have said absolutely no questions asked. Stigmas have to be torn down. No barriers, no borders, no nothing. We just we have to we have to get over these uh, these kind of barriers that we've placed in front of us. But you know, it really does seem to me that every Stigmas getting erased is is false. Stigmas do not get erased. They become co-opted and subsumed Mm. into the culture, Mm. right? And they become a part of the machine that you're supposed to be fighting against. So in a sense, you never want these stigmas to go away, right? You want them to remain taboo or underground, Uh, which, you know... I'm going to leave the 
just the the Roe v. Wade side of this out of it for a second, right? Um, because you you know you don't necessarily want that to be something that has to be underground. But more broadly speaking, about about stigmas, um, you know, stigmas are what people put on unique, interesting individuals, right? And that critical eye, that shunning of the popular consciousness is really a kind of laser beam, I think, that that sort of cuts people into who they are, right? It's, it's you know, a part of what you become in life does come from the support of your family and friends. Now we seem to think that that's all that, that builds people up. But the other half of that, the, the negative side, the yin to the yang, if you will, is everything that you're not supposed to do and yet you do anyway, right? The ways that you break through these kind of barriers. So I, I just, I love that question because we do seem to live in a culture where in particular the left uh, and progressivism, if you can define progressivism, it's, you know, the breaking of taboo, the breaking of stigmas, the normalizing of these things, right? Which again is orbital to, you know, the, the central issue, which is, you know, these kind of systems that subjugate and turn us into our own slave masters, basically. So it's, I don't know, that might be a, a tangent that doesn't click back, but I think that the question you just asked is massively important in 2022 and probably will be until I die. Yeah, well, I, I, I feel that way. And I, th I, was, uh, I, I think that your response uh, is very helpful because I was, I was waiting and listening to hear a word that uh, is in circulation generally, but I, I like how you use it and I like the, the problems that you see associated with it. It's normalization. Uh, I, I say that you know the three most contentious words in English are real, natural, and equal. And in the new writing that I'm doing, I, I'm, I'm expanding on that. And the first word that comes up, the fourth word, is normal, and all its associated uh, you know, forms. Uh, it, it, it's a very, very uh, tricky, and I would say dangerous uh, word. And, and when it becomes a verb process of normalization, which is the majority of the uses that, that you uh, engage with it, um, I think it's very, very complicated. I think that it, it, becomes, it becomes messy in ways that are unnecessary because people are overusing it and not really thinking about uh, what it means. And, this wasn't one of my tools for this week, but uh, we, Dave and I, do often talk about word substitution. We were mentioning, you know, melancholy versus depression at the head of the show. Practice with with normal and all its forms, and see what happens when you substitute some, you know, reasonable synonyms in those situations. Play with some antonyms. See if the the field of that word in a physics sense remains stable and I suggest it won't 
I, I think it's a, a highly volatile, although innocuous seeming word, and things start to really wobble around it, you know? Um, I like that idea of these quantum words. <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. You know, you use the word normal in one context and, you know, somewhere far away, another use of normal begins to vibrate. Yes. I mean, this is what we mean by the ghost radio signal to return to that sort of really, you know, central idea to the series. There is a quantum effect. There's no doubt about it. And you you start really paying attention to that. and it, I've had some hilarious exchanges with students, you know, about, well, you know, do you want to be normal or do you want to be above average, you know? You right. start, you know, and everyone goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you mean, oh, that's a tricky question. Do you want to be mentally ill or do you want to be normal? Yeah. Conversely, right? A lot of, well, it comes down to there are a frame, there is a, a field of words that uh, the media is aware of, even if it's not uh, intelligently aware of, uh, an AI system uh, analyzing media usage would, you know, identify this very quickly. There are a range of words that have an unavoidable and inherent sense of rhetorical purpose to them. And normal is, is very high on that list, and we need to be very, very alert to it, because that's where uh, a lot of the, the petty contention develops between people and what has been dividing people over the last 10 years and dissolving communities. It's not inherent, interesting, real complexity. Yeah. Right. Right. Because real, like, real complexity in these communities that you're talking about that would have been torn apart by that real complexity is the ability to take disparate paradoxical nuclear grade ideas and sit with them both in your head and become comfortable without without reconciling them right that's the that's the trick isn't it and what's been tearing people apart is that, you know, that, that these things, whether they are or aren't actually complex, sort of demand a, a, a script, I guess you could say. And, and a kind of policy, you know, uh, I, I think this is one policy of the, is a good word. the yeah. problems that, that a lot of us face is that we, we're, we're pressured to be, you know, to have a policy on everything. And you think... Well, first of all, I'm not a public policy-making person. I've actively chosen not to pursue that career path. I love the way you put that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just got to say I love that. Because you hear so often people say, like, you know, why has everybody become uh, pundits, right? But I, I think what you just said is much more focused and and brilliant, right? Everybody's not a pundit, but everybody these days is expected to have policies. Yeah. Like a business. Fuck, man, that's that's heavy. 
And it's so unnatural, you know, to use the contentious word, you know, of nature, that idea. It's just not what we're, what we're about. And we're certainly yeah. not about that at the individual level. But to go mm-hmm. back to, uh, you know, another really big underlying theme and uh, mechanism of discussion from the very first episodes of the pod series right up to, to now, Dave and I have you know, focused on what can we learn from what we refer to as indigenous people, embattled, often small, tribal, traditional groups of people in various parts of the world, whether it's the headwaters of the Amazon, New Guinea, certain parts of Africa, uh, parts of the Philippines. Uh, there, there are certain maybe uh, the indigenous Australians still to some extent. These are very, very embattled communities. Uh, I would put Native Americans in a different category because of their proximity to uh, technologized culture. Resistance is kind of uh, not possible and hasn't been for some time. Futile. But one of the things that distinguishes the indigenous mindset and, and this is a crude gloss. It's, it's, of course, a generalization, but I think it's very helpful, and I think there's an enormous amount of, of data that can be found to support it, is that there is an ability to engage and maintain very complex points of view at the same time without the experience yes. of interior dissonance. Correct. Yes. This is something that is touched on a lot in... Gordon White's new book called Animistic, uh, which is uh, essentially um, a sort of history of many different tribal forms of animism and how exactly what you're saying, how that way of thinking is so important today, right? That, uh, if you want to boil down hundreds of hours of conversations that you've had or this book I think you did it right there, which is the indigenous uh, tendency or ability to hold multiple complex or complicated ideas at the same time without uh, focusing too much on or sometimes even acknowledging their dissonance. That is key. That's, that's how you survive in the 21st century. I, th- I think that is the th- that, that's the bottom line and I think that the, the, the next step that you and I have tried to do is to, to look at some of the mechanisms, tools, magics that may help mm-hmm. people hold uh, a holistic worldview together uh, in, in, in a reasonable and sincere way without you know complete fragmentation or what is the, the, the terrible syndrome of the developed nation's mindset that we're all so good at, of just steamrolling any kind of nuance yeah. or yeah. problematic dimensionality down to the pancake level, you know? And that's, that's not what Dave and I are talking about. We're not talking about that. That's unfortunately too easily done. It's completely counterproductive. And it guarantees more contention and controversy and dissonance immediately thereafter. Those are the immediate consequences. Yeah, we don't want to normalize complexity. No, that's beautifully said. 
That's beautifully said. Let us leave some sacred space within our culture. And if people have such a terrible response to the word sacred, uh, I don't think they've been following us this whole time. I think people understand what we mean. (laughs) We need to have the sacred space and respect for genuine complexity, genuine mystery. Let's let's be comfortable with some things that are bigger than we are. We don't have to have a policy on everything, you know? God damn it, you don't. No. <laughs> if, that, if that's not a slogan to call back to the last episode that I could get behind, that would be what I put on my banner while I was in full kilt and Mel Gibson in Braveheart makeup. I don't have, you don't have to have a policy on everything. <laughs> what do you think, and I do want to get into my challenge tip and tool because we have been blessed with a long gust nap, but I'm, I'm pushing it. <laughs> but uh, do you, what, what do you think, you know what, actually, let's do it this way. Next episode, can we can we talk a little bit about what practically that would look like? Because we we've led up to with the slogan episode and with your insight today about uh, everybody needing to have a policy and how we don't want to normalize complexity. Can we talk next episode a little bit about what that might look like? Like what an individual, uh, you know, a cargo prophet shaman of the 21st century who has a cell phone and access to Twitter what that might practically look like I think that's a great idea I think that's a great idea a great challenge for us for next time Uh, and I'm going to think about that a lot too because I'd like to I would would actually if it's okay with you uh, maybe once a month or so I'd like to try my hand at the tip and tool yeah if, if you if you don't i mind. think you should yeah. i think you should david absolutely and i i think you are performing that all the time anyway but i think that uh, very specifically you should always feel welcome to do that absolutely cool cool excellent well would you like to hear yeah i'm very curious creative challenge it's i mean you know i just decided with this one to not get cute with it I was trying to think exactly what I would do. Good. Realistically. Yeah, good. If tomorrow. I was I was given this challenge, what would I do realistically? So twenty thousand dollars would go to a down payment on a house. Okay. That would be the first step that I would do. Twenty thousand of it would go into a trust fund for Gus. Mm-hmm. That would just be the beginning of a trust fund. Twenty thousand, and this is where uh, perhaps it doesn't quite match up with all of uh, our listeners but I would put $20,000 into uh, advertising both my services and my books it's a massive budget but I think that I could set up between a year and two years worth of targeted ads for this show my other show Agitator my novels uh, the Broken River books uh, all things related to my creative business endeavors would, would get a $20,000 budget. And then uh, 20000 would go towards a home gym, which would include a sauna and an ice bath and maybe a float tank. I don't think I could afford all of that in a float tank, but that would be on my mind. And then uh, 
this one is more frivolous, but I've always really wanted one. I would get a really high-end Sea-Doo. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Get a high-end Sea-Doo. A real badass one. Okay. Well, I love the range across these. I, I think that your, your realistic approach is exactly what I was hoping for, because I think the nature of, of the challenge is that. And, and one of the problems when, when people do have a, a, a rich daydreaming kind of thing is they go off into territory that's completely fantastical. And, and so we don't really learn much about values and, and, and some of the things that we're, we're seeking to find out a little bit more information with, with the challenge. So that was a real range of things, very, very practical. Uh, I think the investment in your own career in terms of advertising uh, might have jumped out the most in a sense um, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that's a question I think a lot of artists have, uh, a lot of writers particularly. I think I, I've certainly wondered and, and we often wonder what, what kind of effect would advertising have? Is that in fact the answer? Uh, so there's a lot of good stuff there. I, I hope that um, you'll you'll touch base with those because uh, you might have different answers at different times. Uh, certainly the the, oh, the yeah. nesting. Notice the nesting. Everything connects back. The first one, the twenty thousand dollar down payment on the house. Well, think of the morning doves in my pine tree. Uh, the the trust fund for Gus. Okay, we'll think of uh, the nests and, and the eggshells and all of the stuff going on. It's very interesting. Uh, we are all embedded in a matrix or enfolded within a fabric of, of reality. However much we acknowledge that or however much we ever really learn about it, uh, we keep being reminded that we're, we're not in isolation. So some really interesting things there. Um, yeah, yeah. I want to comment really quickly on the advertising too. I think that this show is so good. Could you imagine if we had a $5,000 advertising budget? I think the show would take off. I think it would, I think that uh, this, you know, cause you've told me in our conversations that you've been listening to some podcasts and have just been, let's say underwhelmed. That's the way and, to put it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think that, uh, I think that it's just, and I've noticed this in my own work, um, everything's pay to play now. And this goes out to all of the creatives and writers and artists, musicians, filmmakers that are listening to this now. Get ready to pay. You gotta pay, you gotta pay to play. Um, just as a quick side note, I got a bit spoiled in the early 2010s, 2012, 2013, when I launched my independent press, Broken River. We had massive success simply through word of mouth on Facebook. Uh, and those doors closed very shortly thereafter. So I was a bit lucky with that one, but you know, Amazon wants to make money. And since they don't charge a whole lot for printing costs of your book, they make that money back by sort of compelling you to to pay for just just literally to be seen right in terms of the algorithm whether or not it's sponsored content but all right tip 
tool. Okay, I'll start with the tool, and I'll, I'll just give a little bit of background. Um, my great fan, uh, friend Phil Abrams, who is a very successful character actor in Hollywood, uh, came over to my new place, and we were filming some videos to promote my textbook, and I really appreciated that support. But uh, in the downtime, being uh, you know creative people, we started throwing ideas around for uh, a television series, and we got excited enough the way that you get wound up when you feel like you've had a hard you know day filming out in fifty mile an hour winds and ghost towns by the side of the lake. Uh, we cranked up a, quite a nice little pitch, uh, a really good treatment, and it was interesting that at exactly the same moment when we'd done enough work, when we had enough notes, when uh, he actually did some, some very direct and very good transcription, getting something down on paper so that it would be like a, a proper pitch or treatment. Our reaction, our, our intuitive sense was, okay, we've got enough critical mass here. Now it's time to start poking some holes in it. What, where are the flaws? And it was very relaxed, organic, but incredibly focused. There's obviously more work to do on that. But it occurred to me how disinclined so many people are to get to that phase. It's one of the core problems with uh, young college and university students today. It's seen as confrontational. It's, it's not a pleasant experience. Uh, the disciplines from debate uh, have been lost about taking another side. And so a lot of the issues that David and I have been talking about, particularly in, the, in this episode, of, of discourse and engagement and a little bit of, of sparring with people, we're losing those basic skills. I've talked in the past about how kids don't play tag anymore. And, you know, that's not just nostalgia, that's, that's serious. And we need to have that discipline of self-interrogation, whether we are making an argument, pitching a proposal, uh, writing a CV, we need to be able to have that critical thinking. And, and in that sense, critical in its more conventional sense. So here's a good way to, 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 to learn this discipline or to refine it. I was thinking back to, uh, it just was my first exposure to it, but it's been done by, by many people. The poet James Dickey, who is also famous for writing Deliverance, one of his uh, quieter, uh, small press books, which is still available, you can find it, I'm sure, is just called Self-Interviews. And the self-interview, if you do it regularly, is a tremendous technique. It continues to reveal self rather than just identity, it, it reveals a deeper level of our psyches, our values, our networks of beliefs and connection. But it can really, really help strengthen critical thinking. It can flush out some ideas you didn't know you have. It can refine some, you know, your articulation of ideas that you, you think, well, I'm, I'm pretty certain about that. I don't say it very well, but, you know. It, it's just a beautiful, beautiful little technique, and you can do it very quietly over uh, a cup of coffee at the start of the morning, a beer, 
just a little bit of reflective time. Uh, you don't have to write things down. You can just use your phone and do voice memos and listen back to it from time to time. I do think it is helpful to, to, to get something down in writing. But that technique is a great way of making the world seem less confrontational. Okay? Okay. So, um, and kind of building on that, so be a little bit. I don't mean this to sound sort of Hallmark channely, but I think this is a good reminder. This is my tip, and and my my tips are I try to make them very very simple, very practical, I, and for them to have really come out of my uh, personal experience. I think that with people who are uh, good communicators generally uh, and engaged socially, and and maybe writers. It's very easy to assume that we have said the things we need to say to important people around us, whether it's partners, spouses, friends, business partners, whatever. And I think we need to review that very carefully from time to time. I recently, just kind of spontaneously, it not a melancholy mood, I think a kind of mix of melancholy and exuberance got on top of me mm -hmm. and I, I just whacked out a short email that really was very meaningful to uh, a friend of mine. Um, it was something I felt the need to say. I didn't really have any expectations about effect. I think that's very important. Don't, don't always have a purpose in mind for every communication. Sometimes you just need to lay something out. But don't assume that you've said everything because you feel close to someone or uh, you've had conversations with them. And I, I'm really not saying something as simple as, told, told them you love them, you know. I, we, we can do that pretty well. We can do that pretty well. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about another level of adult communication that we can often think, well, I've said that at some point haven't I? And probably the answer is no, you know? So take the risk and maybe be a little bit more articulate in that emotional, psychological sense from time to time. It, it, it can seem like a little bit of a risk, but, uh, you know, you can always read it back to yourself and maybe say, no, I don't think I will send this. No, I, I, I got it out of my system and that's it. There is that too, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. This is such a good episode. Those are great. And they really, all of this connects in a way that is really lifting my mood, my melancholy mood. I'm glad we decided to record this now because I, I think actually this came at, the, at just the right time for me. Sometimes you just feel like you need a little bit of a rudder, you know? You just need some kind of uh, a, a chat with a friend to sort of put things that you didn't know were out of order back in order. Exactly. Oh, and absolutely. So I, I, find a, I find a lot of value uh, in the show in general, but this, this episode in particular has, has been really... Uh, Eye-opening is the wrong word, because I think my eyes have been open for so long that they're dried and cracked. I need some visine. <laughs> it's, it's visine. This episode is some nice visine for my eyes. But to wrap it up, Chris, do you have a dream? 
I do, and it, it really puzzles me. There are a couple of things about the, the dream cycle over well, since our last episode. I've noticed that there's been quite a bit of rain, which is unusual because I don't, I don't know where I live is, is in the midst of a big drought. It's the desert. There just hasn't been rain. And the rain has been a very different kind of, of it's been sort of English rain. Uh, there's been yeah. a lot of focus, which is very hard to remember. Uh, I find that, 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 that when words, particularly text, enter into dreams, it, it, those are the hardest things to, to uh, recoup upon waking. You have a sense of them, but, and sometimes, of course, they don't make any sense, but there's been a lot of textual reference in the dreams. But I was working for uh, what I thought was uh, a kind of uh, marketing communications consultancy because it was called the Merit Agency. And then for whatever reason as a subtitle was a kind of weird Spanish Latin bastardized phrase, La Puritas, which I don't know what that means. Okay, This is again an example of some texts that survive. But what it turned out to be was an assassination training school. And the, uh, the, the teachers, the assassins, were a very eccentric group of creepy middle-aged men and women with very eccentric sorts of styles of, of presentation. There was a lot to do with fake glasses and various makeup techniques. There was a whole program on getting your victim, and you weren't told who your victim was or, or why or who was paying to knock them off, of getting them into the car. One guy who really disturbed me with this sort of fake wig and a very sort of effeminate face, but also pocked with acne and kind of like a mutant aging Charles Bronson but with a high-pitched voice his tagline was just get them into the car and I, I was freaking out about that and then there was another group and I think this might be if I pull it out I could I could have a, a weird kind of physical comedy routine it was a street theater group, so there were three people in on this, but that was not apparent. And I came upon this, uh, a truck driver who had broken down and who I presumed was, had some sort of, of mental health defect, but was in fact uh, deaf and was using sign language. Well, these three other people who I thought at first were just passers-by like me started interpreting the sign language and they knew exactly what was going on. And I, I bit on that for a, a little bit and then I thought, wait a minute, I know a little bit of sign language and that doesn't have anything to do with anything. They're just making this mm-hmm. stuff up. And I realized that all, they were a troop. And it was it was kind of a funny uh, bit of uh, you know physical comedy, but their their intention within the merit agency was to lure some passerby and then then to murder them, and it was about the time that I woke up. So it was this 
very eccentric school for killers. Don't know. It's very odd. That is very odd. And, of course, there's always connections. So, I in the novel that I'm working on now, there's a school for assassins, and they're all very eccentric. They, uh, really? Okay, they so now, now honestly, yeah, you have not called, told me that before, have you? Yeah, no, and it's, uh, they're an important plot uh, mechanism for how the whole story actually works. So, they, uh, they unhinge their jaws and eat people um, <laughs> nothing about getting them into cars but you know they're weirdo assassins that are usually uh, basically what what makes them creepy and interesting to me is that they are uh, sort of middle-aged uh, Karens right yeah. uh, they're, they're com- completely unassuming there's a, a scene where one of the assassins stumbles upon a, you know a film screening in a park and just has some very obnoxious thoughts and questions about about it whenever the presenters take questions after the film um completely unassuming sort of middle-aged uh that actually will kill and eat you if if they are paid enough they're, they're part of a sort of a cabal right they uh they have a union if you will then they are when people in the book hear that the you know that the serpents are after them they they wet themselves and cry and because you know you're basically there's no escape from them i love that you know i think that's you know we um, you know we expect you know uh, like special forces assassins or the famous thugs that you know that work for the old man of the mountains that william burroughs talked about but the, the link is this unassuming, uh, seemingly harmless uh, kind of daft people. And I love the idea of hinging jobs. That, that would be really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I haven't uh, actually written a scene where you see them swallow somebody because I, 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 I can't quite get it right. So it's all happening, quote unquote, off camera at the moment. But... I think I have to have at least one scene where it just happens, where this sort of unassuming person unhinges their jaw and it hits the floor, and somebody just in a comical way kind of just gets completely gobbled. And then, you know, the I was thinking it might be funny to have the assassin have just like a li- like if you ate a big meal, right? If you went to a, you know a steakhouse and had a nice porterhouse or something, got got to loosen your belt a little bit. But nothing else that protrudes, right? Like not a human-sized lump, just like oh, full. Makes me think of a, a, a giant carpet python in the rafters of a friend's house in far north Queensland. And we came back and thought, well, there's no question what happened to the cat. 